From the Diocese of Springfield in Illinois, this is Dive Deep, along with Father Chris House and Amber Servany. I'm Andrew Hansen. Father Michael Friedel from the Cathedral is back and better than ever. I didn't run away. <laughs> we appreciate that. <laughs> uh, we're continuing our 10 Things Non-Catholics Will Question Catholics on in an effort to arm you, uh, the Catholic faithful, to defend our faith. Uh, last edition of edition? Yeah, edition. Edition, issue, would be edition. So I'm also the editor of the Catholic Times, so I get my edition and issue mixed up. In our last podcast, we, we did five of them. So we did purgatory, baptizing infants, the Eucharist confession, and papal infallibility. So if you're coming on uh, right now and you're interested in those topics and how to defend the faith, go to our podcast uh, one before this. Uh, but in this episode, we're going to talk about praying and worshiping saints and Mary. That's what a lot of non-Catholics will say we do, how to defend that. Uh, good works for faith alone, the sacraments, sola scriptura, and indulgences. So we'll start off uh, with praying and worshiping saints. Michael, cue it up. Number six. All right, so um, first of all, they're going to say, uh, well, Mary and saints, we're, they're mediators between us here on earth, between God. We, we, take our, we, we pray to them, and they're going to take their, our prayer to God. But uh, Timothy 2.5 says there is... Only one mediator between God and the human race, and that is Jesus Christ. So what's the even point of talking to these other people? Why not just go straight to God himself? I always sort of chuckle to myself, sometimes not to myself, when I hear that <laughs> argumentation, um, only because I want to ask people that that uh, argue against saints, do you, do you never ask your friends to pray for you? You know, when, when you discover some illness in your family or something that's very meaningful— you know, our natural instinct as a community of believers is to turn to others who have that gift of faith and say, can you also pray for me? That's exactly what, what Catholics are doing in, in praying with the saints, right? We ask for intercession. We, we see the life of virtue that they lived. We know um, that they are enjoying the graces of the beatific vision. And so we're just asking if they might on our behalf also pray to the Lord, not that it substitutes in any way, not that we are uh, going to them instead of Christ our Lord, but that we're inviting them into that relationship as a community of believers. When I think of uh, the worship side that they'll, they'll point to, so, you know, you, you carry Mary on a statue through, throughout the church on days, and you, you have days dedicated to her, and churches are named after saints. They're going to say, boy, it seems a lot like worship. What is, the, is, is there a, what is the line between worship and venerating? Because we will say we're venerating Mary and the saints, but non-Catholics, they're going to look at it and perceive it as worship. Well, there's non-Catholic churches that are named after saints, but that's neither here nor there in the moment. So, um, you know, we, we honor Mary and the saints. We do venerate them, but we don't worship them. Worship is reserved to God alone. But veneration is about honoring we honor them because of their witness, because of their lives, many of them because of the sufferings they endured, because of their martyrdom. So, And, that, and that's, that's what the saints are for us. They are both model and intercessor. They are a model for us as how to live the Christian life. And because we believe that they have moved from being the church militant to the church triumphant, that they are in heaven, that they are praying for us, they are interceding for us, that where they are— that by God's grace we may come to be with them, joining with them in the praise of Jesus Christ forever in heaven. Of course, that praise is led by Mary, his blessed mother, so our blessed mother. So, um, yeah, 
it's it's we can be very notorious at times as Catholics for using incorrect vocabulary. We we say pray to well. In essence, we know what we mean when we say that, but we should be more precise. You know, the saints pray for us and they pray with us. We pray with the saints. We don't pray to the saints. Because in the end of the day, miracles, uh, all these acts of divine power, they are God's act. They're not the acts of the saints. So we would be better off if we would be more precise in our language, but that does not diminish the role that the saints play and the power that their intercession has for us. When it comes to Mary being sinless, uh, one of my non-Catholic friends definitely questioned me on where in the Bible does it say uh, Mary was without sin. Also, um, why did she have to? Why did she admit that she needed God as a Savior? She said in Luke one forty six, "My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior." If she was already without sin, as Catholics say, why would she just say that? And then also, where does it say in the Bible? How do we know? Mary was without sin. Well, she said she called God her Savior because he is (laughs) her Savior, right? The son that she was bearing was the Savior of the world, and that includes her. We believe that Mary was saved, um, we we say preveniently, right? She was saved before the birth of her son by the merits of his passion, death, and resurrection, right? So she also, as, you know, a, a, a daughter of of Adam and Eve was in need of that gift of salvation. It just came to her uh, at, a, at an early moment, right, from the very first moment of her uh, conception so that she could have the grace, every grace that was necessary to say yes to the plan of God. And as well, you know, if we believe that that Christ was who he says he was, right, if, if he really was the the very son of God himself, then then she would have had to be a pure vessel, right? And that's um, it's sort of, again, a, an argument by logic, not necessarily um, by finding a, an exact verse to, in the scriptures that, that describes that reality. It's interesting that, <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, what I'm getting at is, and you bring up a good point also, you, we put up photos of our friends, of our loved ones on our walls in our homes, you know, we're not worshiping them. We're remembering them. Um, you know, I think, you know, non-Catholics, especially if, I mean, if you're not atheist, we believe if your loved one, your, your loved one who dies on earth is still very much alive. So asking them to pray for you is the same thing as asking you to pray for me. It's, it's kind of that, that, that human nature, uh, and all of us. Um, I will say on this one, what I think is interesting as a realtor, um, as a realtor, as a realtor, <laughs> the number of people who want say Joseph to be in their home when they go to sell it is actually pretty high. And I find that odd. Like, and so, and he's the highest selling saint in British or this statue. So it's like, Strange. you don't, and then people, you know, want their household, and suddenly St. Joseph becomes very popular. There's also a very real thing called superstition, and we try to strive away from that. See, this is one of those moments, it's like going overseas. It's like, you know, being at the Vatican and next door to the Vatican, there's a McDonald's, and you just shake your head because this is what we have exported to the rest of the world. It's kind of like this, and with Catholicism, it's like, you know, poor St. Joseph. I mean, God love him, and that he's been reduced to being a mayor of Century Twenty One's favorite field agent. It's just kind of like uh, you know who I say. You know who's Saint Anthony? The guy finds everything. If you ha- if it can be found, the amount of things I lose from my three children. So one of them, Vincent, my youngest, lost his glasses, and of course you ask him where is it. He's like, I have no. He's like, it's it's here. It's here. No, no, no. So you pray to Saint Anthony. 
it's getting dark outside. I'm walking outside in my backyard, and, and there I walk on his glasses. Oh, thanks, St. Anthony. Found those. I mean, like, did you break them? No. <laughs> little kids' glasses are practically indestructible. But it's like two minutes later, I would have never found these because it would have been pitch black. But there's St. Anthony finding it for us. All right, what's next? Number seven. Good works versus faith alone. All right, so the Bible doesn't say anything about penance is what some non-Catholics will say. Uh, Romans 1.17 says, For in it is revealed that the righteousness of God is from faith to faith. It is written, The one who is righteous by faith will live. It doesn't mention anything about good works, uh, but the Catholic Church teaches that those two go hand in hand. You, you, you must have faith. You must do good works. Non-Catholics will say it's faith. If I have faith in Jesus Christ, I will inherit the eternal eternal life. Well, but if you have faith, it's real and it's living. It will naturally produce works. That's it's this one of those issues that I think for sadly for five hundred years, Catholics and and non Catholic Christians, we've been poking each other in the eye over this issue. And if you actually just sit and read the scriptures, if you read Paul, you find that the, the two are not mutually exclusive realities. I mean, faith that is real produces works. Works without faith are empty. They do you no good. What about, of course, in confession, you are given a penance to do stuff sometimes. So in essence, maybe you wouldn't have done that, but because now the priest, after your confession is given your penance, now all of a sudden you're doing it almost out of, you feel like the non-Catholics will say, well, it looks like you're, looks like you're forced to do these, these good That's acts. It's to now. make satisfaction. Just like a judge can pass a sentence on somebody or order restitution. Penance is a satisfaction. It's not an you're going to earn your salvation back or anything like that. That's not. We're not Pelagians. We don't believe in earning salvation. But that's about satisfaction. That it's about making some type of of reparation to the honor and the majesty of God that has been offended by our own sinfulness. Yeah, I think you know I'm no expert on um, Protestant theology by any means, but I think that the vast majority of our disagreements on the whole faith works thing. It's, it's really, um, it's distinctions that I don't know are ultimately that helpful. Um, I think in practical use, most of us, I, I would argue, probably believe the same thing. It's just an argument over sort of terms. Um, but yeah, as, as Father House said, you know, again, this is one of the books that um, maybe some of our Protestant brothers and sisters wouldn't necessarily turn to because it's not in their scriptures, but uh, the, um, the letter of James, you know, says a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, and that faith without works is dead. You know, the reality is again, as father house said, if you're living a life of faith, it naturally produces works. And most Protestants um, would say, if you're not, if you're not acting in line with your faith, that, that it speaks to the reality of your faith, right? If you're living a bad life, if you're producing bad works, then you look at, well, then you probably don't really have faith, right? Um, so most Protestants would not say, you can say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then go and do whatever you want, <laughs> right? There's, there's your works sort of have to be in accord with your faith. What about, you know, and I kind of touched on my question, you mentioned you, you naturally, if you have faith in Jesus, you naturally should be you're doing good works. Well, what about as Catholics? We, we talked about Lent of, okay, I don't typically maybe go to daily mass, right? I maybe typically don't uh, serve at the St. John's breadline. So now I'm going to do something, not, not something I would maybe naturally do. And now for Lent, I'm actually going to do it. And I know I'm going to receive grace from that. 
So their argument would be, well, that's not a natural, you, you weren't naturally going to do that. You're now choosing to do that to receive more grace. That, I think that's sometimes where their, their, their problem, where that problem lies. I guess I don't understand, though, because that's motivated by faith. So I, I guess I don't. Yeah, well, I, I think mean, I think they would say, but you're you're doing that because you want to receive more grace. That's not something you. That's something you 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 wouldn't have done. But you're only doing it now because you're you think you're going to receive extra grace on right, top. But of that's it. but that's part of conversion. That's about a desire to grow deeper with God. Because the person who seeks grace, I don't know why you would want grace if you're not we're not looking to grow deeper in your relationship with God. So I mean that's. The whole faith work, it just shows how it's this intimate dance between the two of them, and they can't be separated from each other. I mean, it, for, for the true Christian, they will naturally come together. They're a package set. Right. The, I mean, if you look at Jesus himself, it's, you know, his, his faith in the will of God, it's, it led him to the cross. Um, it's, you know, that, that work was intimately tied up with um, his faith, with, with the desire to do the will of God. Um, to accomplish the salvation of of all of us in this world, so yeah, I think the, you know our Lenten practices they are they're sort of motivated by faith, but they're also the reality that faith moves us to do works, you know, and and that God honors those those realities just as He honored the death of His Son on the cross. He He bestows grace upon us uh, in ways that. You know, we can't we can't earn it. <laughs> There's nothing that we can do to sort of um, call down the attention of of God. Um, he always and everywhere intimately knows us, right? But but He does bestow those graces upon us in in mysterious ways. All right, what's next? Number eight, the sacraments. So the Catholic Church has seven sacraments. Uh, where where is that found in the Bible? You think of anointing of the sick, confirmation. Uh, where are those at? Why did you guys just settle on seven? Why isn't there more? Uh, this, you know, maybe all kind of sounds made up. As you smirk with smirk at me, Father Friedel. <laughs> I do that. Remember, I'm I'm playing the role as a non-Catholic. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's the the word sacrament isn't isn't even really in the scriptures, right? Um, and yet the the church points to these realities in the life of Christ, um, moments when he desired to use specific channels to bestow grace. That's, that's essentially what we believe the sacraments are, um, effective channels of grace in the life of the church and in our lives. So we look to Christ as the founder of all seven sacraments, um, but there's not necessarily, you know, it, there's no heading that says, and now this is when Jesus established the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. We see, rather, in the pattern of his life that he was a healer, right? That he was um, one who gave that ministry of healing to his apostles. And then we hear in, um, you know, the letter to James, for example, you know, send for the priests of the church and, and let them lay hands upon the sick. So we see in that um, there's a scriptural foundation to all of the sacraments. It's it's not necessarily uh, explicit, though, in... in um, in any one letter or, or gospel. Anything to add to that one, Father House? Well, and the, the whole question of the sacraments, I mean, that was debated throughout the life of the church. That is, I mean, for Catholics, we hold to both scripture and tradition. So if you look back, tradition is the lived experience of the church guided by the Holy Spirit. And there, we're going to get into that one next. Well, and, but that's the whole <laughs> thing, that there was times when we didn't agree on seven. 
there were more. And then through discernment, like there's a time when religious life, when the profession of vows was considered a sacrament. You know, any of a king was considered a sacrament. Hmm. But through discernment and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church through her ecumenical councils came to settle on seven. So, Remember in Seinfeld when George was going to name his kid seven? Seven Costanza? You remember that one? Is that because George Costanza was a very faithful Catholic? I don't think so. Pretty sure he was Jewish in the show. (laughs) When you said seven, I just reminded, or in a black sheep when uh, he gets pulled over and he's like, you went seven, seven miles an hour. And usually when I pull people over, they pull over to the side of the road. He's parked in the middle of the street. Again, Amber's laughing. <laughs> Father House is just sitting there stone-faced. All right, what's next? Oh, sorry. I was kind of playing the mind of God while you were watching Seinfeld at some point. So anyway, but that's, that's fine, Andrew. Come that's, on. That's fine. Number nine. All right, you touched on it there, Father House. The Bible alone, the Catholic Church teaches that it's a combination of uh, biblical tradition and oral tradition. Um, a lot of non-Catholics are saying it is, it's Bible, Bible, Bible. If it's not in the Bible... Um, then you don't have to believe it. It has to be in the Bible. We think of oral, oral tradition. All right, so we, we talk about the Assumption of Mary, uh, the Immaculate Conception. Um, these were oral traditions passed on. How do we know? Game of telephone. Things didn't, you know, things weren't actually accurately passed on orally over all these years. And then we kind of came to our final conclusion on these doctrines. Um, that's why we should only, what the, the Bible is divinely written by God, through people, that's it. That's all we need. Well, I can't I can't name the passage off the top of my head. I believe it's in Thessalonians. But Paul teaches that sola scriptura, which, of course, he didn't have the term back then, but the sola scriptura is not scriptural because Paul himself speaks about the traditions. And, of course, that's – did yeah. Paul even understand what was to come? What right, Second Thessalonians uh, okay. 2.15, it's hold fast to traditions, whether oral or by letter. Well, there we go. So you see, I mean, so <laughs> – but we need the tradition. So scripture and tradition together make up what we call the deposit of the faith. So you hear the term deposit of faith. That's what it means, scripture and tradition. As I said earlier, maybe on a previous podcast even, that you know, the scriptures, the truth of the scripture is explicit or it's implicit. So such as we would say Mary's Immaculate Conception is implicit. It's tradition that helps us to understand those implicit truths. Explicit doesn't need explanation so much. It's there. It jumps out at you. Okay, we come to understand, you know, through the angels greeting to Mary, hail full of grace. So through things like that, through the, this, the, the notion that it makes sense that Jesus Christ would take his human nature from a sinless source. So it's tradition that helps us to understand these things, to put these pieces together, to understand the more that the more mysterious truths of the faith that don't just jump out from the pages of scriptures as some truths do simply jump off the page at us, but others do not. Yeah. And in in the gospel of John, you know, the evangelist himself says that not everything that Jesus did is written in this book, right? There's a reality in, you know, in our faith life that, that not everything that God chose to reveal, even in the person of his son is written down for us, um, but rather there's this reality of the lived experience of the church, um, Jesus that Jesus Himself founded, right? That He um, He instituted um, these men and and women that that followed Him. That there's something in that lived reality that gives us a, 
some revelation of of God. And so we have to to understand then that there's that's a privileged place to go to to understand uh, some of the things that aren't exactly explicit explicit to us in Scripture, including <laughs> the canon of Scripture. Right? There's nowhere in the Bible that it says you know these are the only books that are to be contained in these you know between these two uh, covers, and this is you know all that you know this is the only thing that you can believe is 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 this list of of scriptural books. No, that came actually from the tradition of the church um, through the the speaking of the magisterium that we came to understand what was inspired, what was not, and uh, what came to be included in you know the good the good news. Aren't there there are there other gospels that obviously got taken out? What are those other gospels, and are they worth reading? Well, <laughs> you know, uh, it's you know, it depends on what you're reading them for. The church is not saying that those gospels were bad or that there was nothing true in them. The church did not believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, they were not divinely inspired. Okay, right. like, here's the whole thing. I remember uh, when the Gospel of Thomas, that was the hot topic like 15, 20 years yeah. ago. I was in seminary, I think. It's it's all so long ago, it all blurs together. But anyway, <laughs> um, so there was even a movie about the Gospel of Thomas. It's like, oh, the church is hiding this. Well, the church isn't hiding anything. If you actually read the Gospel of Thomas, you'll find out, let's see, I mean, that basically Jesus was a nasty child, that he killed other children by commanding birds to come down and kill them. He abused his divine power, acted in ways that really is unbefitting of the Son of God. And oh, by the way, I think if I read it right, uh, sorry, ladies, but you can't go to heaven because you're not a man. I believe that's also in Thomas's gospel too. So There's some so, weird stuff in there. <laughs> so what's the church hiding? Nothing. Once again, the church is protecting from false doctrines that are incompatible with the Christ that we have come to know. Are there any other Gospels? Oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's Mary. There's Gospel of Mary Magdalene. There's about 13. Gospel of Peter. Yeah. Are, are, are all those, like, you mentioned Gospel of Thomas, are all those far out, or are some of them in there like, oh, this, is, this actually could seem like it's 100% legit? Usually there's some fatal flaws, you might say. Yeah, if I mean, yeah. if they were considered 100% legit, they would be in our canon. There's a reason they were excluded, yes. Um, yeah, so I... Can you read them? Sure. Um, I would argue, though, that if you haven't, if you're asking yourself that question, can I read the Gospel of Thomas, for example? Ask yourself first the question, have I read the Gospel of Matthew? <laughs> exactly. Have I read the Gospel of John? And if you can, cannot say yes to that question, then for the for the love of all that is holy, please read <laughs> yeah. the inspired exactly. word of yeah. God. Start with the real deal. And then you can do the yeah. extra research or whatever you want to do. Uh, I like that. There's something about that image, though, of Jesus committing birds. It's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. There yeah. are traditions, though, that we get in the church. Um, I mean, the name of Mary's parents, Anne and Joachim, that comes from one of the non-canonical yeah. gospels. The proto-evangelion of James. That's a lot of traditions about Mary come from that. And so, and we're not saying that those could be true. We're not saying they're not. But the book itself is not divinely inspired. So there we may, God willing, we all get to heaven and we find out that, hey— you know, there was a lot of truth in this, but through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the church made a judgment that this, we're not saying this is bad, but we're just, we don't believe this to be divinely inspired. It's almost one of those, it, was, it wasn't a hundred percent. Maybe right. there's a yeah. lot of it in there, but. And what, I mean, what we can do with the scriptures, which is read them, understand them, view them with the eyes of the church, and then ex, um, sort of see the revelation of God's sort of do theology based on these scripture, these scriptural texts. We can't go then to the Proto-Evangelium of James and say, you know, and do that same type of work because that inspiration is not there. 
so so we're the church basically says you know if you want to set yourself on solid principles then go here to these inspired texts um it's not to say that you, there's nothing of value in the others but just that you know you won't can't do the same things <laughs> with those texts all right last one number 10 indulgences so this is a big beef Martin Luther had with the church um, because the church was not uh, well, abusing them would be probably the best word to put forth. Um, of course, you know, they don't say uh, indulgences. You know, you can't find that in the Bible, but um, it, it just sounds sounds made up. Hey, hey you, you, you do this every first Friday or, you know, Pope Francis had the year of mercy. You go through these doors at the cathedral. You do this. You go to confession and bam, you have a perfect clean soul. Everything's good to go. We just, well, we just decided this is what you got to do, and bam, you're good. Sounds made up. Fire back. <laughs> Aha! And, and uh, go. <laughs> so, so what is an indulgence? Um, an indulgence is a share in the merits of Christ that were provided for by his passion, death, and resurrection. So the merits of his saving death are given to the church. The church, in essence, is the storehouse, the treasure house of the merits of Christ, and she dispenses those to the faithful as an aid, as a tool to salvation. And so there are various ways of getting those. So, of course, there are certain ritual gestures we do because we're Catholics. We're a sacramental people. We're about sign and substance and sense and all these things. So these actions that we do are more or less a, a physical manifestation of that inward desire to receive those gifts, to receive those graces. The problem was, and, and Luther was right in this, was that there were some members in the church who were abusing this gift, who were putting a price tag on these indulgences. Uh, actually, sadly, I mean, fundraising for St. Peter's Basilica by uh, Pope Leo X, who was not the brightest page of church history, was... Uh, he was out there. He had a uh, Dominican running around by the name of John Tetzel, who uh, his famous little jingle was, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So that was his little jingle, but and it, but it <laughs> worked. Clever jingle, and, bad theology. <laughs> well, we have that too. So, um, and mind you, it was the Dominicans, though, that we unleashed to get rid of the Albigensians. They did that. So, but, uh, but yeah, Tetzel's also, I don't think the Dominicans are very proud of his heritage either. So, but that's the whole thing. It was It's not the notion of indulgence. It, it became that. But it goes back to it was being abused. It was being horribly abused, this notion that you could have put a price tag on the merits gained for us by Christ that are freely given. So, and that's that's the issue. But, uh, you know, non-Catholics are going to say, well, Jesus already paid the price for us. Jesus already paid the price. We We believe in Jesus. We can have eternal life. Why do I have to do these? Maybe not why, but what's the point of these other things to maybe get me to heaven faster. I mean, it's clear G- Jesus is Jesus is everything. He already paid the price for it. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely true. We do nothing that adds to uh the sacrifice of Christ, but rather we by our participation in it, um we we fulfill that in the life of the church, right? We carry that um into time and space. And so our offering these prayers or doing these um you know, little acts of devotion or whatever it might be, they're they're a participation in the the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ. The um, so so it's not something that we win 
in spite of Christ, <laughs> um, but it's always and everywhere through that, that offering that he made on the cross. It's pretty interesting. In Rome, um, if you go to a papal basilica, they, they'll have listed indulgences. I think you know, if you go to confession and then go to mass within, I think, a few days and then say certain prayers, uh, you can receive an indulgence. Well, that's probably just from visiting the what they call the arch basilicas, but the, the criteria are always the same that come with with the specific actions. So it's free freedom from attachment to sin, reception of Holy Communion, and then praying usually in Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory for the intentions of the Holy Father. It's, many times it's not specified, but that's traditionally Our Father, Hail Mary, and Glory be for the intentions of the Holy Father. And then whether it's the visit, whether it's meditating on the Scriptures for a half hour any day, whether it's uh, meditating on the Stations of the Cross, and that's the whole thing. Indulgences are, are out there. They're freely accessible to people. It's not some mystery that's locked away, but that's, yeah, that's our truth. And you have about ideally seven days, nine days. So so we believe if, if in that moment you you do all that criteria and then you die, your your soul is clean, you go straight to heaven. Well, remember, indulgences don't forgive sins. Indulgences wipe away temporal punishment, which is the residual effect of sin. But if you have just gone to confession and sins are forgiven, you do the indulgence, and assuming you didn't sin in that little moment there, you die, we would, we would say you go straight to heaven at that point? That would be the hope. If you're and if you're perfectly resolved to never sin again, you know, and if you're perfectly detached from sin, <laughs> then yes. But oftentimes that's that's the requirement for one of the requirements for plenary indulgence. I'm oh yeah, correct. That's so, why. Yeah, it's a lot so times that's one of the ones. The that, last thing you do, you get everything. Which I mean, it's yeah. and I I I completely understand why at times other people look at this and be like, uh huh. But that's just, I mean... Yeah, because it seems like there's a lot of rules, steps that you guys are just kind of making up, and then you guys are saying this. Faith fills in that gap. You truly believe it. I mean, it's just... And also, I just... We surrender to the wisdom of the church. It's been doing this for 2,000 years, a lot longer than I have. So, yeah, which, I mean... I, also, I've encountered a, a lot of faithful Catholics who um, who say, you know, do we still believe in that? Is that still something we do? Uh, indulgences are still a reality in the church. Um, they've been maybe de-emphasized in, in our modern uh, world, what hasn't, but um, they, they, they do still exist. One thing that we don't talk about uh, anymore as the church has um, sort of understood these mysteries in a deeper way is that, um, you know, we don't, some of our, you know, grandmothers <laughs> would talk about, you know, if you pray this indulgence, then, then it gets somebody a hundred days off of purgatory. We don't talk about time periods like that anymore. One, because we understand that purgatory exists outside of time. So how do we apply? Um, that was an old way that they used to, to sort of gauge um, the significance of, of a certain act. But uh, we don't really talk about that anymore. That's, that's been sort of abrogated. Um, but the practice of offering these things, of, of actually um, performing these, these works uh, for the remission of, of the temporal punishment of sin, uh, for ourselves and for others, we can offer those things for others. You know, if if you knew Grandma was a real bad person, then <laughs> then maybe you should be offering some indulgences for Grandma's soul. Yeah, because you can get one a day, and you can take it for yourself or offer for somebody else. So, but but the la- last question before we sign off here. So, where can I find? You just Google current indulgences in Catholic well, Church. Probably. <laughs> we have the Handbook of Indulgences that you can look it up in. So just go to your local church and say, Father, can you give me the list of current indulgences so I can start to partake? Assuming that Father has a handbook of indulgences. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if Father fails you, Google will probably have it. Yeah, or good yeah. Oh, the old gooks. All right. <laughs> that is our time. Uh, thanks for tuning in here to Dive Deep. If you'd like more podcasts, dive.org slash podcast is where everything's at. 
and we'll see you next time.